Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I am Anna Oberlacher, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Nathan Marcus about his new book, Austrian Reconstruction and the Collapse of Global Finance, 1921 to 1931. Nathan Marcus is an economic and financial historian of modern Europe and currently holds a position as an assistant professor at the Higher School of Economics in St. Petersburg, Russia. Where he is right now. Nathan Marcus, welcome to the show. Hi, hi Anna. Thank you very much. Um, it's great to have you here. And uh, Nathan, I would uh, wonder if you could start the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Yes, well, thank you very much for having me. This is exciting for me too. Um, well, I am a historian who started out um, being interested in economic history. Um, I grew up in Switzerland and then uh, Uh, did a bachelor's degree at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem in economics and history, a double major, um, and then went to do a PhD at New York University, where I got interested um, in in um, the history of Austria between World War One and World War Two. I found that generally the interwar period fascinating, and I knew I wanted to work on that. Um, and after finishing my my doctorate, um, I had two postdoctoral fellowships, one uh, in Florence uh, at the European University Institute. And then I went back to my to my alma mater in Jerusalem, uh, uh, where I was a postdoctoral fellow actually at the economics department. And then I, I, I managed to get a job here in Russia, in St. Petersburg, where I've now been teaching for the last few years while finishing this book that uh, just came out. Great. Thank you. Um, yeah, well, let's talk about this book you just mentioned and your book, Austrian Reconstruction and the Collapse of Global Finance, 1921 to 1931. You study and analyze the events that took place around the hyperinflation in Austria after the World War One, and the controversial, let's say, uh, financial aid program by the League of Nations. What got you interested in that subject? How did you come to write this book? Yeah, well, so 
Um, when I was uh, a doctoral student at New York University looking for a topic to write my, my doctoral thesis on, I knew I wanted to do something on the interwar period. And I had a, a, you know, a comparative advantage, so to say, because I had a, a, a bachelor's degree in economics. So I thought economic history, interwar period, that's a good idea. And because I grew up in Switzerland, uh, I'm fluent in German. So I thought, uh, let's do something about a German-speaking country. And at the time, uh, one of my teachers, Neil Ferguson, was teaching at the New York uh, uh, NYU Business School. And we had a talk and he suggested looking at this uh, important financial crisis, the banking collapse of Pretty Dutch Dalt in Austria in 1931, um, which I had heard about but didn't know much about. So I went back to the books. I started looking into it and I realized that this is uh, an understudied event. Everybody mentions it, but nobody really understands what happened. And also realized very quickly that if I wanted to understand the, this banking crisis in Vienna in 1931, I would have to understand the whole prehistory of the First Republic from the end of World War I uh, throughout the 20s. And so uh, that, that, that's how I started. I went to Vienna and uh, started looking at archives uh, with the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and, and took the history all the way to the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very exciting. That's very exciting. Um, your book is divided into three main parts, um, crisis, control, collapse. So the three big C's, I call them. Um, before I go into uh, details, I would like you to quickly ask about the prologue of the book, which I found very interesting. A prologue uh, titled 1908, so a year way before World War I started and before the events you focus on took place. Nevertheless, it was a rather important year. Can you explain the significance of the year 1901 and how it's connected to the mechanisms we read about in the following parts, crisis, control and collapse? Yeah, well, so um, that the idea of writing the prologue was obviously to get the reader, um, to give the reader the necessary background to understand why this creation of Austria, which today, you know, is, is considered, uh, Austria is considered a, a state like any other at the time after World War One, was considered so shocking uh, for, for the Austrians themselves. And so um, 1908, 1908 is 10 years before 1918, uh, when, when the Austro-Hungarian uh, Empire has collapsed and, and this new state has been created. And, and I wanted to, to use this uh, decade to show how quickly um, things changed for, for people living in Vienna, uh, uh, in particular, and in Austria in general. Um, in 1908 is the um, celebration of, of, of uh, Emperor Franz Josef's reign. He has been um, he has been emperor for for uh, is, is it 70 years, right? Uh, for for a long time, and um, and they have this huge um, uh, festive festive procession through the city of Vienna, where they celebrate um, not only his reign but the history. Uh, of, of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and I, I, in, in my in my in, in my prologue, I, I, I base myself uh, on, on on other historians uh, um, to show how how at that time already the um, uh, situation in Austria um, politically was uh, um, critical, um, and people could see how how the how how the empire is falling apart. Uh, along nationalist lines, uh, linguistic lines, 
Um, but at the same time, how economically um, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was actually doing quite well, uh, was coming closer together, uh, was, was experiencing uh, economic growth uh, that led um, uh, prosperity in Austro-Hungary starting to reach levels of Western Europe, which, which, which uh, until then were uh, always um, more affluent and uh, had, had industrialized earlier. And so the, the idea of the prologue was, first of all, to give, to give the reader uh, uh, the, the necessary knowledge about, about the prehistory, about the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, both politically and, and economically, and also to show uh, in, this, in these few pages how within 10 years um, uh, this, this, collab- this, this empire shockingly collapsed uh, very quickly, uh, creating a, a situation that was new, uh, that was full of uncertainties, uh, that had not been expected, that uh, maybe had been unwanted by, by the people that are the protagonists uh, uh, of my book. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think uh, it, it draws you in very, uh, very smoothly in, into the subject, which is, which is great and um, yeah, makes the following uh, chapters even more exciting because you, you um, know what it is based on and, and, what, and you realize what kind of shock that must have been for, for the society. So let's go in right into the crisis uh, in 1921, the first big uh, chapter of your book. Um, what were the mechanisms, the circumstances, the parameters under which Austria suffered not only an inflation, but a hyperinflation in the years of 1921, 1922, so after the First World War. And what did that mean for the Austrian society? Well, so what I found interesting when I looked at Germany, the larger, you know, the larger uh, uh, loser, the big loser uh, of World War One, um, that resembled what happened in Germany, but but preceded it. So, do we all know about the German hyperinflation? And um, uh, historians have debated how much it was intentional. Uh, uh, you know, car, can't pay, won't pay. Uh, we 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 will destroy. We rather destroy our own monetary system in Germany than pay reparations to the French. Um, but in fact, in fact, in Austria, hyperinflation happened happened before, and there was nothing intentional about it. So, whereas the Germans, you know, had seen what happened in Austria before, the Austrians were were caught un, uh, unprepared by hyperinflation. Um, and it's interesting because also, I, by studying hyper, by studying uh, this period uh, in Austria, I realized how uncontrollable hyperinflations are and, and living here in, in Russia right now uh, where the currency has been very volatile over the last couple of years um, you realize how financial markets um, are um, unpredictable so you know that there's a risk you know hyperinflation might break out but when it actually happens how it happens is very difficult to predict and therefore difficult to control um, and so in, in Austria, there were two hyperinflationary waves, one in 1921 and 1920, one in 1922. And each time the trigger was a mixture of political news, disappointment about, um, uh, disappointed hopes about, about foreign aid and foreign intervention, possible loans, um, 
and then the public reaction to it, which which is panic. Uh, without that, it wouldn't happen. Without people running to the running to the uh, to the exchanges or running to the shops and in, in, uh, trying to spend their money quickly, um, hyperinflation wouldn't occur. Uh, so it's definitely a, a mix of, of of psychology and politics and finance. Mm -hmm. Yes, and you also connect. Uh, these um, all this this the subject of the hyperinflation with um, with um, events um, that occurred in the media and and in cultural uh, in, in, in in culture. So how um, how difficult was it to um, To, to concentrate on the subject, but at the same time, uh, to, to uh, yeah, to build up a bigger picture of, of the subject. Yeah. So, so what I found interesting um, was uh, to look at how ordinary people reacted to hyperinflation, because after all. Um, As I said, hyperinflation cannot happen if the people don't react to it. So there could be, you know, a, a, a strong drop in the in the exchange rate. Um, but if people, you know, um, brush it off and say things will turn back again to normal in a week or two, I'm not too worried, nothing happens. People really need to panic and say, oh, look, the currency just dropped by 10%, 15%. Who knows what will happen tomorrow? We should better go and buy dollars or, or pound sterling. And so for me, it was important to try and figure out what did... Uh, people uh, feel and think and experience during hyperinflation, not just looking at the financial data or at the bankers who are trying to find a way and politicians who are trying to find a way to stop this, but also to tease out what, in one way or another what I call the fears and hopes right, of, 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 of Viennese. And I did so um, by looking both at financial data, uh, at statistics, um, and where I argue that there is uh, people really ha have a distorted sense of time during those hyperinflationary waves, that things speed up around them, um, and that 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 is that there's a vicious circle between uh, between this experience of time, which speeds up and, and creates a panic and uh, and sustains a panic, um, and and this, uh, so so I used statistics for that, um, showing you know that there's a Uh, the tobacco consumption increases. Um, uh, people move move quicker through town by by using public transport more often. Um, but I also also looked at at, at caricatures, um, uh, which are meant to be funny. Um, at least they were for the for the readers at the time. Um, and and these are caricatures that are 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 directed at a male audience, a middle class male audience, and they show how. Um, During these years of hyperinflation, 1921-1922, um, male readers uh, of, of this newspaper uh, experienced um, uncertainty, feelings of uncertainty, fears about the future, uh, dystopian, they had a dystopian view of the future in which um, their value as Austrian men was being undermined by the in, influx of, of, of foreign ideas, but also foreign money, foreign people. Uh, foreign men with 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 hard currency, so to say, with dollars and pounds, and so um, there's on the one hand this this speeding up of time for everybody, and at least in the case of of, of bourgeois middle class men, there's also 
um, this fear of, of the world around them changing fast and making them um, less valuable, uh, less feeling less at home, feeling feeling less comfortable with, with, the, with the new world that they're finding themselves in. Mm-hmm. So and in that situation uh, that was created, um, the League of Nations steps in uh, to help. Uh, first of all, <laughs> and that was difficult and produced some conflicts as well. How did that process go, and what did the reconstruction program imply? What were the tasks or the duties of uh, the committee that was installed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so um, there is a big there is a big discrepancy uh, between the way the League of Nations has been portrayed in uh, or, uh, by Austrian historians and the way I have uh, portrayed it in my book based on my research in uh, in the archives both in uh, Vienna and, and Geneva. Um, at the time, uh, uh, the, League, the League arrives in Vienna in 1922 and stays till 1926. Um, at the time. Um, Especially the socialist press, uh, the socialist parties, but but not only, um, they attack the league as a foreign intervention that has come to subjugate um, the Austrian economy, take advantage of its of its weaknesses, serving the interests of international capital of international bankers, um, and therefore, um, you know, the the sooner the league leaves, the better. Um, and, 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 and you find this kind of uh, negative assessment of, of the League's intervention also in, in Austrian history books. Um, and th- this, is, this is not a very nuanced picture. Um, and though it's you know, reflected in, the, in those original newspaper co- uh, press coverages, let's say in the socialist press, um, I find that the reality was, was, was quite different. Um, and in fact, the, the League of Nations uh, served as a as a uh, as a cover uh, on the one hand so um, it allowed the, the the Austrian government to blame the League of Nations for all sorts of unpopular reforms uh, fiscal reforms austerity that the government had to uh, undertake and which it knew it had to undertake um, it would be wrong to say that you know uh, uh, that this, this, the League of Nations is forcing the Austrian government to do things they don't want. No, the Austrian government knows they need to undertake, they need to do those those steps. And at the same time, the League of Nations also provides uh, what I call in the book uh, credibility mechanisms. So, um, you know, even though the Austrian government has now committed to undertake certain reforms and uh, pursue a, a monetary and, and fiscal policy that will not lead uh, to renewed inflation, hyperinflation, how do citizens really know that this is going to be the case, right? I mean, what, what prevents the citizens, again, from turning back uh, into panic and, uh, and feeling that uh, things might turn out catastrophic? So the League provides a credibility mechanism by saying, no, no, we are here to watch and make sure that the Austrian government and the Austrian finance minister and the Austrian National National Bank doesn't make any mistakes. This is in both both the credibility mechanism and uh, and and you know this kind of scapegoat uh, scapegoat role of the League of Nations are, um, are, are you could say are, are some sort of propaganda. It isn't. This, it's not really true, right? So just as it is not true that the League of Nations forces the Austrian government to to implement those reforms when uh, 
if it doesn't want to. In, in the same way, it's also not true that the Austrian government is re, that the League of Nations is really guaranteeing uh, that the Austrian government will make no mistakes. The League of Nations, in the end, in in Vienna, doesn't have much power. It's uh, it's it's representative uh, a, a Dutchman uh, called Zimmermann. Who, who lives there for, for, for almost four years, um, is, is largely ignored by the government. Uh, he's ridiculed uh, in, in the press, and um, he leaves very unhappily back to Rotterdam. Or maybe, you know, uh, maybe not unhappy, but at least relieved, relieved uh, after, after, after a very stressful period in Vienna, uh, in which he was not very much loved, neither by the politicians, nor by the press, nor by the people. Mm. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and you, you talk about that uh, more extensively in, in your uh, ne uh, second cha chapter of the book, uh, control. So control is, is a problematic issue uh, in a way I understood it. Um, so it's in the one, on the one hand, it is perceived as um, weakening of the sovereignty of the state, right? Um, but on the other hand from the from another perspective it is um it means that it's uh, things are taking good care of in times of vast uncertainty um so would you say that there is a gap between how the help was intended and how it was perceived Yes, yeah, so so I think what makes my book interesting to readers, not just uh, people interested in you know the interwar period or interested in Austria, is that it's a state, it's, it's it's a case study of foreign intervention by an international organization uh, uh, to support an ailing economy, and this is something that has been repeated over the years, uh, and most recently we've seen this in Greece, right, where where the uh, so-called Troika has, has helped Greece stay within the Eurozone. So in, my, in, in the case of Austria, we actually have the ability to study you know, archival sources and see what are those decision makers, politicians, bankers, central bankers really thinking and doing, what are their real interests and how does this, this work. And it, it, it would be, it, it's popular to think about uh, you know, the IMF or the World Bank going to a country in South America or Africa as as this, uh, you know, uh, stooges of, of international capital who come and, uh, and implement policies that, that are in the interest possibly of Wall Street, but not in the interest of the local population. And, and in, my, in the case of, of, of Austria, you, could, you, 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 could, you can find these views uh, expressed explicitly um, in the press um, and in some cases also um, in uh, you know diaries or, or people's memoirs and certainly in history book, but my research uh, tries to show that the situation that the, that the that the history of foreign intervention in Austria, at least uh, under the League of Nations, is, is is more nuanced and more complex, and that um, what what is called control uh, is wrongly understood as you know a f complete. Uh, foreign control of Austrian sovereignty by this foreign uh, institution that now runs the show. No, it's much more. Um, uh, first of all, the, the the idea is to to impress on the Austrians and foreign foreign investors that there is somebody in Austria now that is uh, overseeing uh, or, or advising the government in its decisions. But the actual control, the actual control. Uh, of the League of Nations and its representative in Vienna is over the money that has been lent by uh, 
by foreign investors, people who have uh, bought uh, the, this Austrian League of Nations bond and, and, and lent this new weak state uh, quite a substantial amount of money. And uh, the second, uh, second part of control is uh, the revenues, uh, tax revenues and, uh, and customs revenues, which the Austrian state has pledged, has, uh, has reserved, has earmarked to service this loan. And so this Dutchman, Zimmermann, who is sitting in, in, in Vienna, uh, has control only, really only over those two uh, uh, you know, bags, of, bags of money. The loan, the loan money that has already arrived, and and the revenues, revenue streams from taxes and uh, from customs and tobacco, that are coming in monthly, and that he needs to release uh, to pay uh, to service that loan. Um, so the, that kind of control is very limited. He can then advise the government, and he can demand from the government to do all kind of fiscal fiscal reforms, and he does so. Uh, he writes reports about the progress of the Austrian government in its in its economic uh, reforms, but he doesn't man- really, really control neither the government's budget nor its decisions, um, and and that's also why, in, the, in fact, he remains very weak um, and, and vulnerable to attacks and uh, quite. Mm-hmm. And what were, in the end, the reasons for ending the program? You said that uh, the League of Nations um, was there f- for advice until 1926, is that correct? Okay, and, um... So the, the, the whole program was supposed to last only for two years. I mean, we, we, as I said, it's a, it's a case study not only of A for an intervention, but of the first for the intervention by uh, this international multilateral organization, the League of Nations, you have this kind of um, uh, debt con- control, control in other cases when you know the Ottoman Empire uh, goes bankrupt and needs more money than its creditors, France or Germany, uh, France and England. They will create uh, uh, they create they create those international bodies manned by by, by bankers who who then make sure the the the, the, the Ottoman Empire repays repays old loans and new loans, but here it's different because we really have a, uh, uh, we, we have an organization which is meant to re- respect national sovereignty. Right, the League of Nations is built on this idea that it's a league of nations, um, and even though uh, its financial committee that deals with the Austrian reconstruction is manned by bankers, um, they are there as you know independent experts who are supposed to give advice that is in the interest of the Austrian. Austrian state and the Austrian, Austrian people, and so 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 this whole program is meant to go relatively quickly and end very soon and release Austria back into indi- complete independence uh, within just two years. Uh, but what happens is that um, following following the Austrian and the German hyperinflation, um, people in uh, 1923 start I mean, uh, investors, uh, financiers, people with money in 1923 start speculating against the French franc, uh, uh, believing that also France, which is running a, a government deficit, will experience hyperinflation uh, very soon. And instead, the French managed to get a big loan uh, from the, uh, through, through the Americans, from, from, from JP Morgan, and managed to, to stabilize the, fr- the franc unexpectedly. And this leads to enormous losses among, among speculators uh, all across uh, Europe and also in Vienna. Uh, where after people had lost so much money during their own hyperinflation, they were 
possibly hoping to make a fortune now betting on the French hyperinflation. But as that doesn't materialize, they, they, they lose money. The stock exchange which had, which had the Vienna stock exchange, which had grown, uh, you know, which had doubled, tripled uh, over, over the previous uh, months, uh, crashes, uh, dropped and uh, Austrian banks uh, and investors lose lose their money. Banks have to close down. And so suddenly there is a, a, a new crisis. Just two years after Austrian hyperinflation, Vienna again suffers from a fiscal and financial crisis. Banks are closing. The government might be re- running a deficit again, a budget deficit again, which is exactly what uh, the League of Nations was hoping uh, to prevent. And so uh, they decide to stay longer. They, they don't release Austria uh, just after two years um, and end up staying until 1926. And now it's not that in 1926 suddenly the, the, the financial committee, uh, those bankers in Geneva who, who are in charge of, 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 of the leak intervention, decide that Austria is now um, healthy and stable and, and you know uh, financial, financially secure. No, what actually happens is that the leak intervention in Austria has become so unpopular uh, am, uh, among the Austrians that... Um, there's there's increasing uh, there's an increased feeling that to gain real independence and sovereignty um, they have to uh, so that that's that's not the right way to put it that you know to be really free to really be free the best thing would be to join Germany um, and there has been a long tradition of pan-Germanism in, in Austria it's one of those uh, nationalist movements that under the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, uh, caused so many problems. Austrian uh, German-speaking Austrians who who, want, who think that you know um, their future lies within a larger German nation, and so uh, the French and Italians particularly um, are, are very much opposed to to Austria joining Germany, um, and they they fear that um, if if the league stays in in Austria uh, too much longer, um, this movement will, will 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 gain momentum and strength. And so to prevent that from happening and strengthening some sort of Austrian nationalism, which is still at the time uh, very fragile and very young, they decide that the time has come for the League of Nations to leave uh, to leave Austria. Um, and the League itself, obviously, also uh, needs a success. It's a young organization. And they want to tackle larger problems. Uh, they want to get involved in other areas where, where uh, uh, um, economic questions beckon, uh, solve global problems of, of, of trade. And so, for them, also leaving Austria in 1926 um, is a uh, can be sold as a success, as as, as a job well done. And so, uh, the Austrians, the you know the international uh, uh, arena, sorry, the Italians and the French in particular, uh, and the league, all of them want to want to want to close shop and and uh, and finish this project. And so, um, yeah, so the league leaves in 1926. Even though some of the financial experts on the on the committee itself are opposed to to, to ending the program prematurely and think it would have been it would be better to stay there a bit a little bit longer to provide exactly this credibility mechanism right and also the scapegoat that is necessary for the Austrian government to continue uh, policies of austerity and and fiscal stabilization. Mm. Yeah, so the, the title of the last main chapter of your book is Collapse. <laughs> As we can assume from that title, things didn't go well after the retreat of the League of Nations. Can you explain what happened next? Yeah, so so one of the things I found intriguing uh, studying the League of Nations intervention in Austria was that um, uh, whereas it's meant as a, 
as a as an economic program, right? It's it's meant to uh, sustain government efforts uh, for cutting the budget, you know, reforming the administration, creating savings, all in order to balance to balance the budget permanently. It had a very strong political impact. Uh, uh, partly, you could, you know, you might argue that it was intentional. The League of Nations is an anti-socialist, uh, that's certainly anti-anti-Marxist, anti-communist body. Uh, and you could say that there was a socialist, uh, very strong socialist uh, movement in Austria. The Socialist Party governs the capital of, of, of Vienna and, and thre- constantly threatens uh, to to take over power by democratic means. And uh, uh, if uh, the, the the conservatives um, ended up, you know, establishing. Uh, Sort of a, a, a dictatorship, then the, the the workers would rise up and uh, and fight that. So the League, you could say the League of Nations, um, because it is run uh, by um, uh, the upper class, but by members of the upper class uh, who who feel that uh, you know uh, the working class uh, have gained a lot in in wages and benefits uh, uh, after World War One. That the League of Nations. Um, Sympathizes and sides with the conservatives against against the interests of of labor and the working working class, but the the program itself was 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 meant to do so uh, you know through through polit- through through fiscal policy through cutting the budget through through reforms uh, through um, the firing uh, you know of, of of thousands of of state workers. Um, but what I what I discovered is that um, because of its uh, Role as a scapegoat, um, uh, the League of Nations had had a much stronger political impact, uh, creating a political peace. So for the for the socialists, it was much more easy to attack the general commissioner Zimmermann um, over his during his years in Vienna and attacking the League of Nations uh, instead of attacking attacking the government opposition. And, and the same was true. I mean, instead of attacking the, the, the government in power, the, the conservatives. And the same was true for for the conservatives, who um, were able to pursue pursue uh, policies that were uh, somewhat unpopular, that were costly, that that were painful uh, in terms of uh, of wages or uh, employment. Uh, but then blame the the League of Nations. And so the the two those two major uh, political fractions, the socialists and, and the conservatives, were somewhat kept apart by by by, by the presence of, of the League of Nations. Uh, but once the League of Nations in 1926 leaves Austria, um, very quickly both of those groups, um, ha, ha, uh, which have which have armed uh, those, those political camps, which have armed groups, start clashing uh, publicly in the streets um, in demonstrations. Which uh, in in many cases lead to bloodshed and and death uh, and violent death, and so uh, um, it's you know you could speculate what would have happened had the league not left Austria. Maybe maybe indeed you know uh, there would have been those calls for unification with Germany and and uh, things would have taken a, a completely different turn. But um, I, I do argue that um, the exit of the League of Nations in 1926. Um, at a politically destabilizing. 
Yeah, the collapse um, um, you describe in your third chapter, um, you um, you write about the collapse of the or the, the crisis of the Kreditanstalt. Um, what happened there? Yeah, so so as, as I said earlier, I mean the Kreditanstalt crisis was what got me into this topic in the first place. And interestingly enough, when uh, when you look at the histories of Uh, of the Great Depression, uh, uh, both in uh, uh, in America and, uh, and in Europe, um, you hear you hear a lot about the financial crisis of 1931 and the banking crisis of the 1930s, which which was both uh, uh, on both sides of, of the Atlantic, and um, in many of I think in all uh, basically in all of the history books that I, that, that I consulted. Um, The, the 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 story that is the narrative is that um, in May 1931, this Austrian bank, which is the largest bank in Austria and the largest bank in Central Europe, um, closes its doors or collapses or announces announces uh, enormous losses, and that this triggers like a snowballing effect of of, of banking collapses and financial crisis uh, that spreads, you know, um, uh, from cent from Vienna to Central Europe. Uh, in Germany, you then have The Donut, uh, the Donut collapse, and, and the German financial crisis of July thirty-one, uh, and finally in September, um, in August and September, you have uh, um, the most important uh, uh, event: uh, the uh, speculative attack on, on pound sterling, the, the reserve currency at the time, and and the Bank of England's decision in the end to uh, exit uh, the gold standard, uh, which which is which is shocking. Uh, you know, the bank had done so only in times of war, uh, and now suddenly in times of peace to to uh, stop um, gold convertibility of, 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 of the British pound um, signaled this uh, uh, catastrophic turn turn of events, uh, and, and 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 there is a real collapse of uh, of global finance. So so banks stop lending to each other, um, interest rates. Uh, go up, interbanking uh, loans go up, and, and and banks start start collapsing one after the other. Uh, more 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 so in in the US maybe uh, than in Europe. And so so this was what intrigued me in the first place. But how is it possible that this Viennese bank, no matter how big it might have been, you know, single handedly causes uh, the collapse of global finance? And uh, as you if you read the book, you will see that. Um, I, I don't think it actually did, and I go through long pain. You know, I go through pains, really, really to try and. It's difficult to prove that something didn't happen. Right? Uh, it's much. It's already difficult enough to prove that something happened. Uh, to disprove, to say, to show that something didn't happen, is is actually quite challenging. Um, but um, it's just, I find it very important because to show that the, this Vienna Bank was not a trigger and that there was no snowballing effect and that there. Uh, that the, 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 this banking and financial crisis of 1931 didn't spread like uh, um, like an avalanche, right, uh, out of Vienna, because um, even though historians like this narrative and it might make intuitive sense, um, it is wrong. Uh, and financial crises, banking crises, are much more complex, and they have multiple causes that uh, that come together at the same time and reinforce each other. Uh, and create vicious circles, and um, uh, such simplistic simplistic accounts um, are, are not helpful if you want to understand 
uh, understand the financial crisis uh, of today or, or in the past. Is, is there anything we can learn from um, taking a look at, at the events from that time for today's events or in connection to the euro crisis? You mentioned um, Greece earlier, the, the Troika, and uh, of course the, the big financial crisis, uh, crisis um, global financial crisis of uh, 2008. Yeah, I think there there's lots lots to learn from the past for today, and also I hope that my book does uh, provide some some insight not only about the past but also about the uh, you know uh, present day concerns. As I said, it's you know it's it's in many ways a case study of foreign financial intervention, and so um, I I do think you know even though we can't draw one to one parallels, we do learn a lot about what happened in Austria. Uh, that ca that can be useful if you want to understand these sorts of financial interventions today. And uh, give, give, presenting the league intervention in Austria uh, in a in a more nuanced nuanced form, showing how it was uh, helpful also in uh, providing political stability, and um, particularly I think uh, this uh, scapegoating, uh, the, the the way politicians uh, used uh, um, populism. Um, uh, to to create support among their party base um, by accusing the league um, of uh, representing foreign interests, uh, uh, of representing interests of uh, international capital, uh, or uh, you might even go as far as saying, you know, Jewish interests. That uh, resembles, in my eyes, a lot of what is going on nowadays in countries, say, like Hungary uh, or Poland, uh, where also um, economic malaise, uh, complicated international problems are, are simplified by populist politicians. Um, uh, you know, in Hungary, uh, there are posters of George Soros um, on, every, on every corner uh, saying, don't let him have the last laugh. That these, this very much uh, reminded me of the, of the caricatures uh, of Zimmermann that I look at in my book. Um, so, so I think I think that we, we can learn a lot about the, the mechanisms um, that underlie this sort of politics um, um, by, by looking at, at, at the Austrian case study. Um, Then I think uh, this, the second uh, lesson that uh, we can we can we can uh, learn, uh, or, or that's a different way the book uh, speaks to to present day concerns, is specifically Austrian. So you might ask yourself, why did it take so long uh, for such a book to come out? I mean, you know, if if this banking crisis in thirty one did not trigger the Great Depression, how come people don't didn't say so before? Or if the League of Nations actually was much weaker than people thought? Why hadn't that been written about? And I think that's because Austrian historians have, um, in one way or another, um, uh, seen Austria as a victim uh, of the 1920s. And uh, that's somewhat connected to the uh, Austrian um, victim narrative uh, of uh, Austria under the Nazis in the, uh, in the, from 1938 to 1945, which has been much revised, uh, you know, lately, uh, since at least since the Waldheim affair uh, and historians in Austria uh, and generally the pu public opinion in Austria 
um, is, is much more critical about Aust Austria's role uh, in, in, during during the World War II uh, and its implication, its, its involvement, in, obviously, in, in the Holocaust. Um, but this, this, this victim narrative that, that, pre that had prevailed, at least, uh, in the years following World War II, uh, had, 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 had some kind of uh, parallel or origin in presenting Austria also as a victim in the 1920s, as a victim of, of, of large power politics, of, of the Paris Peace Treaties, then of the League of Nations, uh, and finally of global finance in the 1930s. And so while, while the victim narrative of, of the late 30s and early 40s has been revised, somehow historians were not able to see that this victim narrative was also falsifying Austrian history in the 1920s. And so I think one, another thing we learn here is um, how important it is to, to, um, for historians to, to critically engage those, kind of, those national myths, myths right, and, and deconstruct them uh, and figure out uh, what really happened and not try to make uh, sources um, fit uh, the, national, the existing national narrative, but rather change change the national narrative and national uh, in, uh, understanding of history according to the archival archival records. And there was a third a third message um, I wanted to talk about. Um, yeah, so maybe you know and, and then and then we have we have we have the case we have, we have the case of, of Greece um, which also <clears throat> which which you know present day Greece which I think resembles the case of Austria a lot, where uh, Austria is in the 1920s tries to be a member of the uh, is a member of, of, of the gold standard system, and and foreign countries uh, like you know powerful countries like France and Britain are interested to to keep this gold gold standard system working, and when Austria starts um, um, experiencing its crisis. Uh, credential crisis in May 1931. Um, bank, central bankers of, uh, of of Europe's important nations of Brit, you know, Britain, Italy, France, they, they meet in Basel at this newly founded institution, the Bank for International Settlements, and they try to uh, provide emergency funds to help Austria uh, stay in in the gold standard area, and um, the Austrians. Um, are aware that they are the linchpin of, of the system, that if they, if, they, if they collapse, if they exit it, then possibly other countries might follow. And that very much resembles uh, the, 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 the case uh, of Greece during the Euro crisis, where um, France and, and Germany were very much interested in keeping Greece within the Eurozone and uh, the Greeks, uh, and feared that if the Greeks were to leave, that uh, that might uh, uh, induce other countries to also uh, abandon the euro. And in both cases, in the Austrian and the Greek case, we can see how these small countries that are considered uh, weak and economically uh, unstable actually can leverage this this position that they have within the within this uh, larger system um, uh, 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 and. Trying to negotiate um, assistance and uh, uh, conditions that uh, are, are beneficial to them, because they have they, they have this systemic power, right? That because because them exiting uh, will might lead to much larger problems.
Yeah, that's very, those are very exciting insights and, and I find it very exciting. Um, the new perspectives you, um, you gain with your book, especially when you now mentioned that the, uh, the victim narrative, um, it helps us to understand that, uh, this, this one better and, and also, um, yeah, the, um, The events that happening uh, that are happening today in in today's global finance, which is very complex, obviously, as you pointed out. <laughs> um, yeah, w would you like to add in anything else um, that's important to you? Well, I think I think one of the things that people should know uh, before they before they, when considering buying the book is that it uh, I, I really try to bring together different methods. That um, so that on the one hand it's 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 it is a very traditional um, approach that uses lots of archival material from the League of Nations, from Austrian government offices, uh, from central banks, correspondence. But but I try to 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 use also cultural sources uh, such as um, uh, mainly cartoons, uh, caricatures that I try to analyze, um, uh, uh, and and finally financial data. Um, and I believe that as historians, uh, when we approach a topic, um, we should do so open-mindedly. We should not go there with a preconceived thesis, no matter what they tell you in graduate school. We should not go and look at this with preconceived mind and see, you know, do, does that, that, do those, uh, do those uh, sources fit my, fit my thesis? Um, no, we should, we should go and let, and let those sources speak for themselves and try and see what kind of, what kind of story emerges. And, and the more sources we use, um, and the more and the, the more varied varied these sources are uh, from different places, but also uh, also of different kind, the more complex uh, our story can can become. Um, and so, you know, if sources are there, we should use them. And financial sources, actually, I think, are very very useful. Um, not just because they are accessible. Uh, you know, they're often printed in newspapers. And and, uh, and therefore they're you know available online, which is something you can't say about you know the letters of Ambassador X to Foreign Ministry Z. And not only are they accessible, also there is a certain objectivity to them, which is difficult to find when you look at um, at other primary sources, uh, you know um, letters or, or or when you try to interpret a, a caricature. Uh, there's very little debate about what the currency exchange rate was on a certain date in a certain year. Um, it's a given fact, and it's reported several times in different newspapers on the same day. And so I believe bringing, back, bringing together those different varied sources and see how they react with each other is what really allowed me to make those historiographic interventions uh, to change, to really change our view about, about what happened in Austria in the 1920s. And uh, so I, I just want to, you know, uh, uh, encourage people who are doing history to use financial data whenever, or all sorts of sources whenever they can. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much um, about these insights. Also, yeah, um, the last point you, you mentioned, I find very interesting because I also realized uh, when I was reading the book that, that you have a an affinity for storytelling also um, in your style of writing. Am I right? <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm glad to say that uh, uh, the first review um, of of my book, which just came out, 
um, actually called said that the book that book that that, that book was written uh, is accessible and actually in in, in some in some uh, actually even entertaining. Yes. <laughs> so I think I think I think you know for me for me uh, that that means I passed my I passed my review with flying colors. If somebody calls a book with this kind of title accessible and entertaining, then I definitely think I did a good job. <laughs> yes, you did. I well I I can only agree with that. I really enjoyed reading it, and I want to encourage. Uh, our listeners to um, yeah to give it a try because uh, it's very exciting topic and it's also um, very entertaining to read indeed <laughs> um, is it is it um, important for you for your writing uh, process to um, to find this kind of anecdotes this stories um, how important is that for your writing process? Well, yes, certainly. I don't want to, write, you know, spend uh, years and years of research and then of writing to produce something nobody, you know, enjoys. Um, so when I when I when I decided to 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 go and write this book, um, I, I had, you know, certain friends and family members in mind who who read nonfiction and who I hoped would enjoy reading this book too. So and I knew that um, just presenting uh, dry data and facts is not going to engage my readers and hence bringing in um, anecdotes literature uh, cultural sources like caricatures was was very important not only uh, because i believe that uh, using all available sources is necessary but also hopefully because it will make more of an engaging and interesting read for uh, non-historians. Yeah, well, we'll, we are excited about your work, uh, Nathan. Um, What's the current or next project you're working on? Yeah, so I actually started uh, looking into a new project and uh, I I will stay um, uh, loyal to to Austria and Central Europe. I want to uh, study the Austrian uh, and German currency reforms that uh, were undertaken after World War II. So it is again about uh, a period of uncertainty, uh, post-war reconstruction, but this time it's in the context, not of the League of Nations, but of the Cold War. Uh, and what, 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 what drew me into this, into this, into this uh, field is that, um, as you might know, the, the Austrian currency reform preceded a, a German currency reform. Uh, so the Austrian currency reform happened in late 1947 and the German in the summer of 1948. Um, uh, and what was particularly interesting here is that in, in the Austrian case, uh, Austria, as you know, is, is occupied by the four forces. Vienna is divided into four sectors. That in the Austrian case, the, the Western allies, France, uh, Germany, uh, France, America, and, uh, and the Brits, uh, 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 on that control council, they agree with the Soviets on issuing a new, a new, no, a new currency uh, in Austria, the shilling, and how to convert it, and what the conditions should be. And um, a new currency is issued in all of those, in all the four sectors for the whole country. Uh, but in in Germany, just a, a, a little bit more than half a year later, um, the four occupying powers can no longer agree, and the, the Americans and British end up unilaterally issuing 
the West mark in, in their sectors, in their zones, and the Russians, uh, the Soviets get very angry and upset and uh, declare that the, the that this is a breach of agreement. All economic policy should be done unilater- uh, should be done unanimously, and uh, the, the Soviets then start a blockade uh, on West Berlin. Um, and closing off their sector, and the Br- British and Americans organize um, the la- what is known to be the largest um, uh, aerial supply uh, um, uh, flying goods from 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 their zones into West Berlin to feed the population uh, for a period of months. Um, and so we have this 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 uh, this uh, um, point in time where where the Cold War. Uh, you could say, you know, where, where, where things freeze. So, so until then, maybe it's unclear whether the Soviets and the West will somehow find ways of agreement. In Vienna, uh, in late '47, they clearly still do, uh, but eight months later in Germany, they don't anymore. And I would try to figure out what is it about those currency reforms in Austria in 1947 that make those the the West and 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 the communists, the Soviets and the and, and the Americans mainly, right, uh, part ways eight months later in Berlin. Oh, that's exciting news. And um, yeah, dear listeners, uh, make sure you follow the research of Nathan Marcus um, and to get his new book. Um, we talked about today, Austrian Reconstruction and the Collapse of Global Finance. Uh, Nathan, I think um, we've taken up a lot of your time now. <laughs> Is there anything you would like to add? Uh, hopefully, everybody who buys the book or gets it from a library or reads it online, I hope you enjoy Yes, me too. And yeah, I've really enjoyed talking to you, Nathan. And um, yeah, take care. Uh, thank you, dear listeners, to uh, listening to this episode of New Books in German Studies. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I did. And I say goodbye for now. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.